Hello and welcome to True Love No Shame, a podcast on recovering from Christian purity culture. I'm Danny Fankhauser, author of Shameless, How I Lost My Virginity and Kept My Faith. You can learn more about my book at shamelessthebook.com. I'm here today with pastor and author Bromley McClinigan, who wrote Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option, and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. So Bromley, I love the title because it makes it very clear what the book is about. This was an issue I thought about for years and, you know, would read Christian books that were about sex or relationships and was just kind of like waiting for someone to come out and say, it's it's not that big of a deal. You can have sex before you're married. And no one has said it in a book. And this title makes it very clear that's what the book is about. So what I wanted to start with is you actually didn't grow up hearing that waiting till marriage was the only way. So can you tell me a little bit more about how your denomination was different than sort of like this evangelical denomination that myself and others grew up in? So I grew up in the United Methodist Church, and there are certainly parts of the denomination that are more steeped in conservative social values around sexuality. And um, for ordination candidates uh, and folks who are, you know, then who go into the ministry, the suggestion, not the suggestion, the you vow um, celibacy and singleness and fidelity in marriage. So, <laughs> so it was important mm-hmm. to me uh, to get married before I was ordained. So that that is sort of the line, but it's just not the focus of a large portion of the denomination's life. Like our focus growing up was on a whole lot of other things. And to some extent, then I think I was a lot more, you know, theologically well-versed than biblically versed, maybe by the time I got to college. So, I mean, we did all the kinds of things that lots of church people, you know, we went to worship every week and Sunday school and youth group and we played and we learned and we did service projects and went on trips to the boundary waters every summer, you know, um, <laughs> and mission work trips in Appalachia, you know, I mean, we did sort of all the church things. We just didn't really talk about sexuality a whole lot. Um, there was one sex ed weekend that we did. I think probably I must have been in middle school. And I'm pretty sure my dad, who's a pastor, was one of the leaders. So the fact that I didn't die then is, is pretty, <laughs> pretty impressive to me. So the emphasis, well, they did say that the curriculum that they used did talk about marriage as the best place for sex. It was not shame-based. It was not, there was no sort of talk really about a lot of the, it just wasn't the primary focus. The The primary focus of that curriculum was about good decision-making. Um, and so there was also information about birth control and changing bodies and how do we make choices as Christian people. And if you're a Methodist, it's, uh, you know, scripture, tradition, reason and experience. So it's not, so from very early on, there was this sense that there are a lot of voices in addition to, not a lot, but there are other voices in addition to scripture that inform how we think about sex. So, so that was one. In my family life, you know, my mom had a second edition of Our Bodies Ourselves, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. I I was born in the very late 70s. And so the fact actually that I'm a a little bit older, the purity movement, I think, didn't really hit its peak until maybe just when I was kind of out of high school. So to some extent, I sort of missed it that way. And so my parents, you know, they handed me a like your changing body book, which I read all of, and learned, you know, again, about making choices that feel good to you and feel wise and where you should go for help and wisdom when you need, you know, when you have questions. Um, and so, so that was, and then of course I grew up in Illinois and the suburban high school where I went to, we had really good 
health class, you know, I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't fantastic, but it was, you know, the information was pretty accurate uh, for yeah. straight kids. So I think it was just the fact that there was no overriding voice from the church talking about this and any singular Christian sexual ethic or any mm-hmm. singular Christian sexual behavior pattern or restriction or prohibition or whatever. It was the church was a defining voice in a lot of ways for me in terms of my identity, but not necessarily around sexuality. And mostly for better, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's so interesting because I had such a, a different experience where it was, <laughs> yeah. you know, my my parents didn't talk to me at all about it. And I think just kind of crossed their fingers and hoped I would learn, I guess, at at church or at other places. But yeah, I mean, it was a very clear, like, this is the only way. And if you're having sex, then you're not a Christian if you're, you know, in a high school kid who's having sex. So at what point? So I you talk about in your book, how you have friends kind of come to you and say, like, is it okay if I sleep with my boyfriend? And you're kind of like, you know, sure. Um, (laughs) So at what point did you realize that kind of like people had this sort of diverged experience with Christianity? I think, I mean, there were kids who went to, you know, I mean, there are certainly evangelical churches. We grew up in the shadow of Willow Creek, um, which mm-hmm. is you know, one of the first big ones in the Midwest. And so there were kids who went there and certainly who were hearing uh, that sex was something that was not to be had. Although it was funny, um, one of my boyfriends at the time tried to convince me that one of his two of his friends were having sex and their girlfriends both went to that church. And I was kind of like, there's no way. <laughs> so I think I must have uh-huh. known in the back of my mind that that was not a thing at every church. Um, but it's funny because a lot of my friends, I wouldn't say that we were late bloomers, but very much had a sense of not waiting because we were good girls or not waiting because we were Christians or whatever, but just because it, it wasn't right yet. Um, mm-hmm. So so I think that I first became aware probably of, of Christian purity stuff in college, but really more from a religious studies way. I, you know, I wrote a journalism paper article on one of the really conservative student Bible studies that I knew a girl who was in and I, I went... Um, and I remember being so indignant there. My article wasn't very good because I was not very journalistically objective. <laughs> I was so mad because, you know, they're like, oh, you know, when did you become a Christian? And I was like, oh, I was raised in the Methodist church. And they're like, no, but when did you become a Christian? I was like, no, I'm, you know, anyway, so they, I was, yeah. I was mad. They doubted my authenticity. So, but yeah, I really started reading about stuff. And then I read some of Josh Harris's stuff when I was in grad school and then did my, um, graduate thesis on Christian sex ed stuff. And so, uh, more specifically at like the curriculum that was being used in, in various places at that point, most of my friends, you know, other than the one who called me, although she, this is sort of funny. So I don't want to confess that my book is inaccurate. However, when I wrote to that friend who I talk about in the introduction, who called me, mm-hmm. uh, asking for advice, I, I misplaced it. She didn't call until I was a first year seminary student. Um, and you know, we were all already in graduate school. So even then asking for you know, sort of my blessing to and wisdom in, in whether or not she should sleep with her boyfriend was was significantly later. I mean, she was 21. So I guess part of my thought is that there's so much fear that like, if you give kids a comprehensive sex education, and if you talk to them about their faith, giving them choices and discerning 
what is right and good in their lives that they'll like immediately start, you know, banging everybody they can. But that was not the experience of my friends. Like when my friends and I all started being sexually active in various degrees, it was pretty intentional, you know? And, and yeah, so, yeah. And, and it was later. Right. So yeah, not all of them yeah. were, had glasses and were flat tested like me. I mean, some of them actually were like <laughs> making choices. It wasn't just circumstantial. Yeah. So I, for a long time, I read a lot of books by Christian authors about sex and they're just, there wasn't anyone sort of coming on the record and saying, you know, it's okay to have sex before marriage. It's, it's not that big of a deal. Um, and for years, I felt that way, but I was sort of like afraid to act on it. And it was really interesting. The timing your book came out. And um, so I'm just curious, has there been that much backlash or what's been the reaction to it? Certainly from certain circles, there have been, there has been backlash. There are, you know, I've gotten called lots of nice names on Facebook and in the comment <laughs> section of the Washington Post. Um, but in some ways, it's a very, you know, the book makes a very modest claim. And it's funny that you, uh, you mentioned earlier that you liked the title because it, it just drives me nuts because the, um, I didn't want the book to be an argument. I wanted it to be, I just didn't want to ask the question or deal with the question of s sort of like whether or not people should have sex before marriage. I just wanted to start at the fact that some people do. And so, but that doesn't mean that they can't ask ethical questions or think about what their faith has to say about their romantic relationships. I felt like so, so I wasn't so much making an argument for sex outside of marriage mm -hmm. as just saying, let's take that as, as a given in some cases and talk about other things, you know, what does lust look like? You know, what does fidelity look like? What does appropriate intimacy look like? Because I felt like, because I've read all the, you know, I read all those books. Um, you know, I think it's so interesting because like I read, is it Real Sex? What's uh, Lauren Winner's book? Yeah. Uh, Real Sex, The Truth. Yeah. The Naked, Naked Truth, Truth about Chastity. You know, and there's so much good stuff there. So, but I would just get so hung up about some of the other things. Um, so yeah, so I just wanted to, I didn't want that to be the primary question. I also thought, you know, because there were a whole lot of folks writing when those books, you know, around the, you know, the turn of the millennia, because there was real sex. And then there was oh, a woman in California who had decided to, you know, she converted to Christianity and, and took on chastity and Anna Broadway. Anyway, but, uh, and then the Josh Harris books and, and things like that. And there was so much regret. That was so interesting to me. Yeah. So anyway, no, but so there was some backlash, but I really do think that, you know, there are also a lot of people who are having sex and would like to think about that. And it might be useful for them to think about that through the lens of faith and their relationship mm -hmm. to God and to be told that they just can't because they're sexually active is, is not all that helpful. And I'm a pastor, right? I'm concerned with like people's actual lived experiences. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that people almost hear it as like, everyone should have sex before marriage. And it's like, well, no, like <laughs> people should do what they need to do. But yeah. And I think a lot of people are, and just uh, kind of aren't able to talk about it with their Christian friends. I've definitely seen that at church where people sort of feel like it's um, something they can't talk about. It's so funny too, because I mean, I don't know if this is, and this is just like a difference in circle, but most of my, like, I, I don't know if I have ever married a couple, maybe once, have I married a couple that wasn't living together? 
Oh, wow. you know, yeah. so I mean, like, uh-huh. I, so, you know, I mean, like, it's pretty clear that they're, you know, and they come to me and they tell me that, you know, I mean, so it's not like, but, but it's interesting because there's always this, I think they expect me to yell at them about it. So oh. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yeah, you know what? Cause, cause they're like me and they've heard, you know, <laughs> cohabitation will <laughs> send you straight to divorce and blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. And I do think, uh, oh, so- sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I do think it's interesting because you said, you know, you're not saying that people have to have sex before marriage. I do think, though, that like one shouldn't marry without a pretty good understanding of one's own sexuality. That doesn't necessarily mean that you had to have like had sexual intercourse, you know, but like, Mm -hmm. but I do think that you should like have done some self-examination (laughs) <laughs> both in an innuendo way and also in a like reflective you know uh uh-huh. reflective way yeah. you know um because i do think that like i mean i've been married for how many years now 12 years and and i do think that like sexual chemistry is important mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's not the only thing but like I don't know. I think it matters. Yeah. Yeah. Another book I read when I was pretty young was, I think it was called Best Friends for Life. And it, it really was just like, you're supposed to find someone who is your best friend and the sex thing will just work. And <laughs> which is another really interesting thing in terms of like how I was raised. And it, it was, it almost seemed like what I was taught was that God will provide this perfect husband for you if you just um, wait and trust God. Right. But then, you know, as people, who grew up in that purity culture of kind of like, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And and now I've been to churches where the pastor said something like, you know, so many of you are single and you're like praying to find someone to marry and like, well, maybe God just wants you to be single. <laughs> uh, which like, I understand, like there, I know there's that passage where Paul talks about, um, you know, sometimes it's better, like you can serve God better if you're single or, or something sure. like that. Um but so what's the way that you think about this and kind of like the theology of, you know, does God want us to be married or does he want us to be happy, I guess? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's such a great like, <laughs> I would hope that God is ambivalent about whether or not we want to be married. But if we are married, wants us to be happy. No, um, and wants us to be happy no matter what. <laughs> My uh, biblical Greek is really terrible. But the Beatitudes, you know, uh, the word that is often translated, blessed are the, you know, it's like makaroi. It can also be translated happy are. Happy are those who. And so I think that it's interesting, uh, you know, that the idea of thinking of blessing as happiness Anyway, that's sort of a side note. But yeah, no, I really object to a a matchmaker God. The chapter that ended up being on singleness um, in the book, I rewrote like six times. And I started it with attempting to log on to Christian Mingle. Have you ever looked at Christian Mingle? So, I mean, there's the sense, and I can't even remember which psalm or proverb they quote, you know, as their tagline, but it's, you know, basically God has a perfect mate for you somewhere. And <laughs> although the the first question is like, how tall are you? <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> Which I just think is amazing. <laughs> I'm like, cause that's the first yeah. thing, you know, cause if you know, you're a good Christian husband should probably be <laughs> taller than you, but whatever. Um, and then there's all this stuff about like, where do you go to church? Mm-hmm. So no, I don't think that there, well, I don't think there's one person for, I don't, I don't necessarily believe in soulmates. Right. I think that like, there's a whole or people yeah like people who are predestined to be together now part of that is because i don't necessarily believe in like predestination right i think that like my understanding of Mm -hmm. god has created us to be free right um and 
hopefully, uh, you know, to choose God and, you know, follow God. But so, no, I don't, I believe that circumstances is really huge. You know, I talk about, I mean, one of my friends who's been single forever, you know, like is a lawyer in New York and she's brilliant and beautiful and, you know, fun. <laughs> you know, she's single because they're like mm-hmm. a lot of single women lawyers in New York and like not as many yeah. men. Right. Um, so actually I know another woman who is demographically also like the same age and beautiful and lovely and a lawyer in New York who is also single. So, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. so I think that there's, um, you know, I don't, I think that has a lot less to do with God and a lot more to do with like the population of New York. Yeah. And definitely changing norms and in, in our culture in general. Um, I also lived in New York for a while and then tried dating there and it's, you know, and I was focused on my career too. And I, I think that was another thing that changed for me. It was sort of, as I got older, it, it was like, well, does God want me to just not have this intimate part of like not have access to intimate relationships and just be cut off from that if if I happen to be focused on my career it just kind of didn't add up yeah and so that's right I mean it is true that like when you are in a relationship it is time consuming and rightly right like you have to give time Mm -hmm. to build intimacy and partnership with another person like that's just how it goes I wrote at one point in the book like I don't know if Josh my husband and I would have like fallen sort of so quickly into couplehood if it hadn't been summer when we got together and I was in grad school and he's a teacher. So he was off, you know, and we just like spent a ton of time together. Like if I had been trying to do my homework, would we have like, uh, like got married right away? You know? Um, So I do think, and now I have kids and I have no time to do anything, you know? So I can't, you know, so I like relationships are time consuming and you can give more in certain ways to your work and to your friendships and to other projects if you don't have like primary responsibility for one or for other people right but mm-hmm. but and there's you know i mean that's why i think celibacy and the priesthood can work nicely right they can move the priest wherever they want because it doesn't like he doesn't have a wife but in some ways if you desire a partner and you feel called to like you know that that you would have both joy and be able to serve you know god in the world while in a relationship then then i wouldn't think god would want you to be single totally but, yeah. yeah and so then i'm actually i'm working on another book now about sort of about providence because i don't you know Uh i don't really know how it works i don't want to say that god's not involved but at the same time and i don't want to say it's like blind luck that things work out for some people and not others um or you know just structural injustice but at the same time i don't want to say oh yeah well like if god wanted you to have a partner god would give you one i don't think that's right nonsense it's yeah it's not that god doesn't care but you know yeah so one line i loved from your book uh which i've always also seen quoted a lot online the call of the gospel is not to protect ourselves at all costs, but to risk ourselves in love. And I thought that was really interesting because one piece of pushback I get from other Christians about this is that sex bonds people so much, and which is a really wonderful thing in a relationship. And so then I guess the question is, can you bond with multiple people across your lifetime? Or is that less of a bond if you have had that with more than one person? Yeah, it's funny because... I have mixed feelings about the claim that sex always bonds you to someone. I mean, it's like a, it's, you know, it's an intimate thing, obviously, and it binds you in the moment and probably for a (laughs) while. But, you know, but I think humans are not just biological creatures, right? Like we're meaning making creatures. And so the way that we interpret and make meaning out of 
the things that we do and the relationships that we have is is probably ultimately more powerful than the things we do on any one time. I mean, I do think so it's, it's, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like what the meaning you're giving to that. Like if you go in and you're like, oh, one night stand, I, I'm not going to talk to this person again, you know, like, and that's kind of like, you're not going to get the same experience out of that, that you are, if you're like, this is my boyfriend, we're in love kind of a thing. Right. Like, I mean, right. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing. My only real attempt at a one night stand, I'm married. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I, we had known each other for a long time, but, um, so I don't know if it's, so I guess what I mean, I mean to say is, you know, I was always like a serial monogamist. I did not date a whole lot. We got married when I was 25. We had been together since I was 23, you know, so in some ways <laughs> I am not the, the right example to talk about that. But I do know that like, we are fully committed and capable of being together, despite the fact that we both had other sexual partners. You know, I can't even, right. I think I talk about this. There's a chapter on history, um, you know, and I can't even remember what it was like to be with someone else, you know, mm -hmm. like the idea yeah. of that is so foreign to me now, you know, sex is sex with my husband, you know, um, for me. Right. So, yeah. So I don't think that also, I mean, in what other way are we told that like, I mean, where else in the Christian story are we told that love is something that like gets smaller if you give it away? <laughs> Right. Like that's so counter. It's like with having, it's like with having kids. It's like you don't you don't love the second one less than the first one. <laughs> There's a great line. Um, Heidi Newmark is a wonderful um, Lutheran pastor and writer, and her first memoir, Breathing Space, is about uh, the church she pastored for a number of years in Queens, and um, and she has this line in her in that book. Um, where she's talking with her kids when they are small about love. And one of them says, you know, basically, how is it that you can love? Oh, she says, she says goodnight to one of them and, you know, says, I love you with all my heart. And she says to the other one, I love you with all my heart. And, and the kids are like, well, how can that be? You know? <laughs> and she goes, well, that's the yeah. way it is with love. It's a miracle, you know? Um, and she says it in this more beautiful kind of way, but, but that's the thing with love. It's a miracle, right? It's so odd to me that in some ways, uh, segments of Christianity, particularly in America, treat sex as so different from the rest of human and Christian life, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I guess what I'm looking for as like a, as a pastor and someone interested in theology is like something that is consistent for people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of my next question, because I think you talk about this in your book, too, is, um, you know, how do people make good decisions, um, especially, you know, it's almost easier to be like, oh, black and white rule, just wait till you're married and everything's fine. But how do you decide what experiences are going to be positive and fulfilling? I do think that we have a 10 year old and uh, who's just started walking to school by herself and walking home from school with either herself or her sister sometimes. And uh and, and pretty much the day that we decided that she could do that, we got like an email, you know, the whole district from the school superintendent about, uh, you know, how a suspicious, you know, person in a van tried to like get a kid to come in the van with, you know, and we're like, yeah. oh, great, right. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so we were talking and, you know, but we're like, we're going to keep sending out. So we ended up having this conversation at dinner the other night, though, about just last night about, you know, if anything like that ever were to happen, 
what you could do. But our kid is like pretty anxious, right? So of course I'm trying to reassure her that that's never going to happen. She doesn't have to worry about it. But my husband says to her, you can trust the feeling in your gut, right? You can try, you know, if you feel scared or you feel uncomfortable, just leave, you know, like you have to trust Mm -hmm. that. And so to me, I mean, I I think that's really imperative. Not just, I mean, obviously not just in the situation of being 10 and walking home from school, but I think in, in a relationship or in any encounter, you have to sort of trust your gut. And it's funny for me to say that because I can barely make decisions about like where I should eat lunch without a committee of people, you know? Um, So uh, and my boyfriend in college used to make fun of me for making all my decisions by committee, but actually maybe that's part of it too. I mean, trusting your gut, having like wise and loving, you know, people who love you to help you make important decisions you know, listening certainly for the voice of God through scripture and through the church. But, but I think holding all those together in discernment, I think is probably pretty important. All of those things. And and again, knowing yourself. I mean, that's the, the, the gut thing, right? Knowing what's good for you. I mean, there are certain people I am not, um, I, I write about this, I think in the, there's a chapter called Naked. Um, about vulnerability. And for some people, you know, they feel stripped bare and like really seen by, you know, people knowing a certain piece of information about them or um, seeing something or whatever. And and for different people, like kissing is the biggest intimacy and oh my God, you know, and for some people intercourse is, and for some people like oral sex, you know, even if you, you know, they never do that, you know? So I, I think people have different degrees of like what they're comfortable with. And I think knowing what yours are and, and weighing part of appropriate vulnerability is knowing what you can risk in any given situation. Like how much of your heart, how much of your body, you know, like what, how much do I trust this for this? And, and to some extent that's, I mean, that works in the purity model, right? I mean, it, cause they're saying you're risking everything by having sex and you can't risk everything unless you have the like stability of marriage to protect it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just don't think that it's so black and white as that, you know, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like that you mentioned vulnerability because I think that was kind of a newsflash for me was that in order to have intimacy, you have to have vulnerability. And so there is a chance that you could get hurt. And, and that doesn't mean that it was a mistake to have feelings for someone or to spend time with them. Yeah. I mean, right. You get <laughs> right better than to love to love than lost than never to have loved at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, heartbreak happens. I have definitely had my heart broken. Um, that's okay. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's part of life. It's part of life. And you can't, and I think that's the, I mean, I think that's the thing. You can't avoid that. You know, you can't avoid it. So, yeah. so, I mean, the whole, you know, I do a lot of like parenting stuff now, um, both in my work and because I am a parent, but, but the whole, you know, the whole big buzzword right now is about resilience, right? That it's not that we can protect kids from hardship. You know, we, <laughs> we don't want them to be, you know, snowflakes who melt at the slightest word of criticism, you know, but, um, but we want them to be able to like face challenges and 
carry on. You know, we want them to like know what, what to do when they make a mistake or when something doesn't go the way they thought it would, you know, and that's true in our romantic lives too, right? Like Mm -hmm. things don't always go the way we think they will. And we need to know how to keep going. Totally. Yeah. And so I think it's so great that your book is out there because it it gives people a, a way to talk about this and a way to talk to, you know, their Christian friends and family about it. Um, because I know, uh, you know, there's kind of a situation where you get older and you might go on an overnight trip with someone you're dating mm-hmm. or you bring them home for the holidays and you're kind of like, can we, you know, just share my bed at, yeah. <laughs> at my home? And it kind of is, it's forced to talk about it with your family. Um, do you have any tips for how to kind of uh, approach that, especially if your family might feel differently on this topic? Um, that's so, that's interesting. I think the first time that, uh, Josh and I shared a bed in my parents' house, we were already living together and engaged. So, um, so, and I'm pretty sure I did ever spent the night with anyone else in their home, mostly because I've always lived near them, except for when I was in college. So, um, but I think talking about sex with your parents is terrible, right? <laughs> like, so if you can possibly <laughs> yeah. avoid any conversation, you know, <laughs> I would just do it. If it's just for a weekend, like whatever, if they want to press the point, you know, I mean, I don't always think that things are left better unsaid, but when it's like the status of my mm-hmm. sex life, uh, that's fine. My parents know that I have three <laughs> children. Um, and, uh, so, and that is sufficient. So, so to some extent, I think that like, if you're in someone's home, then like, whatever respecting the boundaries of their hospitality is like part of being a good guest right i mean right methodists don't drink in their retreat centers though i drink so Mm -hmm. like i don't drink at the retreat center right so that's um i think that's just like a being a good guest but um i don't know i mean i think part of this is like I mean, again, it's that bigger question. Like, how do you help your parents to see that, like, you're your own person and that, like, you love them and are discerning something different? And I mean, I don't know. I think that (laughs) Diana Anderson, do you know her? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know her in person, uh, but I read um, Damage to Goods. and, And she talks about, like, having that conversation with her mother and sort of, like, coming out to her. And and Uh I think she's queer by but basically talking to her mom about having sex and and it was not as um i mean she was i i am like astounded i feel like she was so brave but but at the same time it was like better than she thought so maybe in some ways it's it's the same as as any kind of intimacy right like figuring out what you can stand to lose and what's at stake you know i mean like if you depend on your parents financially and they're gonna like stop helping you because they find out you're having sex, then like probably don't have that conversation with them um, or ever. But like, um, but if they ask and, you know, um, I think the other thing though, too, is that like, particularly the farther you are into adulthood, I mean, I don't know. I think parents like tell you more stuff, right. And and you can start to see them as people. And it is, I mean, also people um, like Big majorities of the population have had sex outside of marriage for years and years and years and years. So, like, I mean, part of the reason that I didn't anticipate my parents flipping out when I moved in with my boyfriend was because they lived together before they were married. (laughs) Uh I mean, like, the first gay people I knew 
like were not my friends, but like my parents' friends. So it's, so, I mean, I think that like in some ways being aware of the history and, and like that there's, you know, in some ways nothing new under the sun. Right. Um, I mean, it may be that when you're open about your experiences, they feel like they could be more open too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. It, it's kind of like you, you have this chance of greater intimacy with, with your family by, um, by being open about it. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, like, I do hope that like most parents just want us to be happy and healthy. So like, if they know mm-hmm. that like, this is not a ruinous thing, you know, then that's, that could be reassuring for them. Yeah, totally. So last question, uh, what do you think is the most important thing that someone should know before maybe getting into uh, an intimate relationship for the first time? Um, for, I think you should really like know each other, uh, whether, you know, and be able to like, know yourself and and know how to like read the other person and i think go slow too one of the i talk about this in the book but it's like a continual pet peeve for me is you know like when when teen sexuality is shown on uh you know on tv shows or whatever you know dawson's creek there's always like two closed mouth closed mouth kisses and then Uh like he tentatively puts his hand on her chest outside her shirt and then they're having the question of whether or not they're going to have sex and and Uh like that it's not how this should go right (laughs) like like, there can be lots of time uh for build up there can be lots of time for like increasing levels of intimacy you know um there's no rush, right? Also, uh, you should definitely have as safe of sex as possible. Um, either, mm-hmm. you know, make sure that everybody has a clean bill of health or like use condoms and dental dams and, um, you know, and then maybe back up birth control if you're straight and having uh, intercourse. But, but I think like, you know, while I think we're supposed to risk ourselves in love, I don't think we're supposed to risk ourselves unnecessarily, right? So like if someone mm-hmm. is not respectful of you or isn't caring or kind or won't listen if you've reached a unanticipated boundary within yourself, you know, like then that's not the right thing. Um, yeah. So I just, you know, I, I want, so yeah, that those are the kinds of things that I would recommend people think about and then also you know this is supposed to be fun right and life-giving so if it doesn't (laughs) if it doesn't feel fun and life-giving then you know don't but if it does then don't (laughs) you know but if it does then you know it might be worth exploring yeah it's kind of the go with your gut yes well this has been wonderful thank you so much bromley thank you and thank you for joining us for true love no shame be sure to check out bromley's book good christian sex and we'll be back soon with more 